Friends, welcome to Word on Fire Catholic Ministries. Word on Fire is an apostolate dedicated to the mission of evangelization, using media both old and new to share the faith on every continent and to facilitate an encounter with Christ and His Church. The efforts of Word on Fire engage the culture and bring the transformative power of God's Word where it is most needed. Today, we invite you to join Bishop Robert Barron as he preaches the gospel and shares the warmth and light of Christ with each one of us. Peace be with you. Friends, I don't know about you, but somehow I'm always a little bit relieved when we return, as we do today, to ordinary time. After the long uh, Lenten season and then the seven-week Easter season, followed by the Feast of Pentecost and the Trinity and the body and blood of Jesus. It just, uh, even as we say how wonderful all of those are, it's yet with a kind of deep breath and sense of relaxation that we come back to ordinary time. And it always seems that this right that it happens at the beginning of summer. It's kind of like we're, we're settling in now to the, the normal routine. Well, for this Return to Ordinary Time, the Church gives us, as our first reading, a section from that endlessly fascinating third chapter of the book of Genesis, which tells the story of the fall. Can I urge everybody to take out your Bibles and read those first several chapters of Genesis? Um, I don't know anywhere in the literature of the world where you're going to find a, a richer account of who we are what we're called to be, and what goes wrong with us. But especially in the third chapter, where we see the story of the fall and all of its implications. What we find today is the immediate aftermath of the original sin. So what what happens to us now in the immediate wake of sin? We know something first, beautiful detail, subtle. God has to look for Adam. Where are you, God says. Now, don't read this as a, a chink in the armor of God's omniscience. It's not God suddenly, you know, I don't know where you are anymore. God never loses sight of us, but it, it's a beautiful symbolic expression of the fact that sin always involves an alienation from God, a wandering away. How wonderful, first, that God, even as he, he asked that question, where are you, is not giving up on us. Rather, and this is clear throughout the Bible, he's, he's seeking us out. Where are you? Even when we feel a million miles from God, there's still that strange link, isn't there? That compelling tug that conviction that we're not where we're supposed to be. See, that's the question coming from God. Where are you? You might say it's the voice of the conscience. You know, again, I'm, I'm a million miles from God. I've wandered down all kinds of bad paths. I feel like, oh, you know, I, I barely have any sense of God. But yet, in the depth of my being, I hear that question echoing. Where are you? Where are you? Beautiful. There's a whole biblical revelation in some ways in that question. 
Well, then comes Adam's answer. I heard you in the garden, but I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. Well, prior to original sin, Adam wasn't afraid of God at all. Rather, he walked in easy fellowship with him. Seeing everybody, this is what God has always intended. That's what God wants, that we walk in the garden with him, that we walk in, in rhythm with him. What sin does is it awakens our sense of the anger of God. I'm using biblical imagery here. Mind you, this is not a question of God moving into a negative emotional state. Like God was in a good mood, now he's angry. No, no, it's a symbol, everybody. It's what our relationship with God feels like when we've wandered away. See, in alienation, we feel, oh, he's angry with me, and, and I'm afraid of him, consequently. That's why John Henry Newman said that natural religion, so the religion of you know people all over the world, wears its dark face outward. What he meant there was that's often a primal experience of God is being alienated from God because we're all sinners. And so I'm afraid of the God whom I've wandered away from. Furthermore, Adam knows himself to be naked. It's a very interesting detail, isn't it? Prior to sin, Adam was utterly unselfconscious so directed to the goodness of God and the goodness of the world around him that he felt no need to protect himself or hide himself in any way. You know, make a contrast here between a little uh, child, a little toddler, you know. They can go just wandering naked through the house sometimes and they don't even know the difference. It, they're, they're not aware of themselves. And now contrast them to teenagers in action. <laughs> you want to see people who are utterly and totally self-conscious. Watch a teenager sometime, you know. Um, notice, too, how, how free and vulnerable, I mean that like in a positive way, that you can be in the presence of friends, right? So people in the presence of whom you're not threatened, you're not afraid, you're not trying to hide or protect, how, how kind of free and open you can, you can be. Well, that's the way we're meant to be with God. That's what God wanted from the beginning, that we could be so unselfconsciously oriented to friendship with him that we were not hung up on ourselves. We weren't self-consciously looking at the effect we're having and so on. Shame, in this sense, shame is a daughter of sin, the result of sin. Now, see, listen, as God knows immediately what this means. Who told you that you were naked? You've eaten then of the tree of which I had forbidden you to eat. Wonderful. See, God understands the minute that Adam says, oh, I, I was naked. Well, that means that you've, you've sinned. Because prior to sin, you, you wouldn't even be aware of that. You've eaten of that tree of which I'd forbidden you to eat. Now, is God forbidding things arbitrarily here just to be bossy, just to assert his dominance? Well, I'll let them have you know, free reign, but oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pull back. Don't eat that tree. Well, no, that's not what it means. 
the tree he's talking about is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, right? It represents, therefore, something that belongs properly to God alone. It's God alone who, as it were, after consulting his own being, his own nature, determines what is right and what is wrong, what's in accord with that nature, what's out of step with it. The point is, it's not our business to be deciding right and wrong. The grasping at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, therefore, is this illegitimate appropriation of what is proper to God. Now, you think this is some uh, quirky bit of ancient, um, ancient speculation. That's as contemporary as, as today's headlines. Right, We determine right and wrong. We determine the meaning of life. We determine everything about ourselves. Our freedom invents reality. See, that's, that's exactly what's being talked about here. So there's the, there's the source, everybody. There's the, there's the origin of sin. Now, what follows from this original sin? Listen. The man replied, The woman whom you put here with me, she gave me the fruit, and so I ate it. And when God inquires of the woman, she plays the same blame game, right? Listen, the serpent tricked me into it, so I ate it. One of the most fundamental functions of sin, blaming, finger-pointing, scapegoating, accusing, Watch the television show some night. And I mean here like those news shows with all the talking heads, you know, where they're, they're accounting for the news of the day. And, and just keep count of this. How many times people blame others? Just do it as an exercise. Watch the talking heads news shows tonight. And then keep a, a little note of how many times someone else is being blamed. Now, I'm not talking here about properly objective analyses of of why things have gone wrong politically or economically. I'm talking about blaming, accusing, scapegoating, shaming, etc. Just watch and count. And then, then keep that little book and do the same exercise when you engage with your friends in casual conversation. <laughs> Am I right? We sit down with our even with our friends. Casual conversation. It's about the weather for a while. But before you know it, we're blaming, shaming, accusing. The two great names of the devil in the Bible are the accuser and the scatterer. Both are operative and visible in the story. He blames her. She blames the serpent. And notice that more subtle blaming of God himself that's going on. The woman that you put here, <laughs> Adam says to God. So it's not just Eve's fault. It's, you know, Lord, it's your fault. You put her here with me. The protection of the fragile ego becomes perhaps the paramount concern in the wake of sin. Oh, no, not me. I didn't do it. Oh, no, no. I, I got to distract attention all the time to others. Prior to sin, the ego didn't really exist. And see, that's symbolized by the nakedness of Adam and Eve. 
the, the, the lack of self-consciousness. But after sin, it's practically everything, right? Fellow sinners, I mean, we're, we're all in this boat. Now, all of this I've been talking about helps us immensely to understand Jesus and his work. And we see it in, in the gospel we have for today. In our gospel today, and actually it's everywhere in Mark, Jesus functions as an exorcist, someone who drives out the demonic. Jesus specifies that his work is in driving out Satan, Hosatanas, which is to say the accuser, right? That's what the word means. The false way of organizing ourselves, present from the beginning, is through accusation, through scapegoating through the establishment of us against them, insiders versus outsiders. Notice, please, how Jesus drives out the accuser. Why? Why? Because his kingdom will be predicated upon other assumptions, namely love, nonviolence, the forgiveness of enemies, the overcoming of division. You see what's going on here? The world that's born from sin, described so well in the beginning of Genesis, is now being reversed and undone by the world that Jesus is opening up. And see, when this vision of life comes into conflict with the powers of the world, which is more or less inevitable, Jesus becomes himself an accused victim, a scapegoat. But instead of responding in kind, he takes upon himself that negative satanic energy and swallows it up in the divine mercy. See, now listen with that in mind to some of those powerful texts from the Old, from the New Testament. On the cross, Jesus broke down the walls that separate Jew from Gentile. We hear in the book of Revelation that the accuser of our brothers has been cast out. See, that's the work of Christ that undoes the effects of sin described so well in Genesis. Take a look, everybody, at those first three chapters of the book of Genesis. Think of how sin has affected all of us. Then take a good, hard look at Jesus. And God bless you. Thank you for listening to this week's homily from Bishop Robert Barron. For more resources from Bishop Barron, please visit wordonfire.org.